Well, good morning. It's, I guess we can officially say Happy New Year now. As we've entered into this, this uh, new year of 2024, it's uh, good to join together and to uh, usher it in, welcome it in with worship, with gathering together as the body of Christ, uh, and praising our Lord together. And we continue with that as we open up His Word and we study it together as we uh, learn from it. I read a story a few weeks ago near the end of World War II, downtown Warsaw in Poland was almost completely leveled by Allied bombing. There was hardly anything left in the center of the town. According to one witness, the only skeletal structure, and again it was just skeletal that remained on the main street, was the Polish headquarters of the British and Foreign Bible Society. Not much of it, just a little. And on the, the only wall that was still fully standing was engraved and clearly legible these words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And central to these words is the promise that he is coming again. In fact, that's the context, we looked at it several weeks ago, that is the context in which those words are even stated. And this morning we return, after a little bit of a hiatus over the holidays, to that important text we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. As we've seen, it can be a bit thorny of a text, yet however thorny it may seem at times, it is quite smooth and straight on the topics that should be most important to us. And nothing should help to clear away the clutter, to help us see through the fog, to help prioritize things in our life and to understand what is most important than the promise that Christ is coming again. The second coming of Christ is a significant theme in Matthew 24 and 25. And it begins with the question that the disciples asked in verse 3. They wanted to know what would be the signs of your coming. And they had to be talking about a second coming since he was already there with them. And then in verse 27... Matthew records Jesus picking up that topic, and ten more times he begins to reference this second coming. As we were reminded last week from 1 Peter 4.7, it brings with it, this second coming, this return of Christ, brings with it an end to this age and all the troubles of this age. And there are many. A couple of weeks before Christmas, we paused after verse 44 of Matthew 24, where Jesus said, you must be ready. Because the Son of Man is coming. We have a problem though, don't we? How do we know we are ready? And by ready, we don't mean do you want him to come again? Or are you excited that he's coming again? You can be excited about something but not ready for it. No, we mean are you prepared for his coming? Have you done, are you doing what you are supposed to do in light of his coming? Are you ready for it? If I were to ask you that question, how would you answer? Would you be able to confidently say yes? Or would it be more like when you ask your children, are you ready to go? And suddenly they start scurrying about, hurriedly grabbing whatever they need, putting shoes on, socks on, sometimes shoes without socks, because they didn't take you seriously the first time. Maybe you think you can answer yes. You are ready. In that case, I have a follow-up question for you. What standard, what measure, 
are you using to determine that you are ready? How do you know that you are really ready for Christ's return? Well, the good news for us this morning, the gospel news, is that we can know. Jesus tells us how we can know, and he tells us that by means of a parable, a parable that compares two slaves, one that is ready, one that is clearly not. If you want to take your Bibles and open up to Matthew 24, if you haven't already, you can read along with me, beginning in verse 45 through the end of the chapter. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 44. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not think he will. Who then, in light of this, is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But... If that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pray with me if you would. Father, as we once again enter into the Olivet Discourse and the reminder that you are coming again, pray that you would help us to prioritize what you would have us to prioritize, that we would think rightly, that we would be good stewards of what you have entrusted to us. Help us with that this morning. In your name, amen. Before Christmas, we were introduced to the third characteristic of Christ's return in this Olivet Discourse, this Christ's return called the, sometimes the parousia, or what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. And that third characteristic was its unexpectedness, the surprising nature, the lack of knowability with regard to the timing of his return. And as we noted then, Jesus introduces this characteristic in order to instruct us on wise living in this world. How then, in light of this, should we live? And this unexpectedness has been the dominant theme throughout the second half of chapter 24. But what you may have already picked up on as we read those final verses is that there's a subtle shift that begins to happen. It's a shift that we'll see as the emphasis changes in chapter 25. The unexpectedness is still important. In fact, it it serves as the backdrop for faithful living while waiting. And that's what Chapter 25 will emphasize what does it look like to live wisely while waiting, while anticipating Christ's return. And so these verses begin to show us the transition or begin to transition that emphasis. Verse 45 introduces us, as we've already noted, to the first of our two slaves, the sensible and faithful slave. You may remember last Sunday we looked at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 where we were instructed to live in light of the end being near. In fact, it opens with, the end is near. And the very first thing we are told to do because the end is near is what? Be sensible, be clear-minded, be of sound judgment. It's the very same thing we find here of this first slave. 
Well, we return to the same theme here in verse 45 as it relates to the faithful slave who's told to be sensible, to be sound in judgment. And there's a few observations. There's not a lot. It doesn't tell us a lot about this slave. And that's for a reason. He's not the main focus. The main focus is the returning master. But there are a few things we can observe about him. He's been given some level of authority or stewardship, you might say, within the house. He's responsible for carrying out the task of providing for the household, for their food at, it says, the proper time, which is an interesting Old Testament allusion to the providence and the care of God that you find throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. There's no further comment made about his task than this. We could infer that he has proven himself at least somewhat responsible to be given this level of responsibility. But he's to care and he's to provide for the household. It's evident from the context, just verse 44 that we read along with our text, that the master here in this illusion, in this parable, in this metaphor, if you will, is Jesus who is leaving but will come again. And the slave is the reference to the one who claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 46 takes that little bit of introduction we get to the first slave and makes a rather profound pronouncement about him. It says, blessed. It opens with a term that really, if you've been with us through most of the study of Matthew, should be a term that is pregnant in meaning. Jesus' public ministry began with an extended teaching we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And how does the Sermon on the Mount begin? With nine blesseds. Blesseds which describe a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus Christ, one who believes in God. In fact, the term blessed is used only three other times of someone other than Jesus in Matthew before this, but each of those times it refers to a faithful disciple, one who believes in God and is following the instructions of Christ and of God. By saying blessed is that slave, Jesus is declaring that that slave has demonstrated true faith, true belief. But in this context, it's a little bit more than that. Because at the beginning, Jesus said, who then is not only the faithful slave, but also the sensible slave? So that blessedness describes that he's both faithful and sensible. Again, clear-headed, wise, single-minded, Now, why does he say that about him? What great thing has the slave done to demonstrate this great wisdom and faithfulness and to earn such high praise? Did he figure out exactly when his master was returning? Was that it? Did he solve every eschatological end times question we could ever have? No. They made sure the household was fed at the proper time. That's it. Put simply, the slave is not overly occupied or concerned with when the master is coming. He's concerned that he is returning and thus what he should be doing. He's faithfully doing what he's been told to do day in and day out. Because he is faithful to do it every day, day in and day out, then naturally, whenever the master returns, he'll find him what? Doing it. Because he does it day in and day out. When the master comes, we learn... He will likewise reward him when he sees him doing it. The blessed slave will be rewarded. And the reward for faithful service 
is to be put in charge of even more things. Interesting parenthetical here. You get this for free this morning. Notice that the reward is not retirement on the beach. The reward is greater and more significant service and trust. We were created to work. We were created to serve. In fact, we talked a little bit about the, leading up to communion, the priestly service and the sacrifice. The language of Adam and Eve in the garden is priestly language of service and serving. It's the same language that's picked up in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in describing that priestly service. We were created for that. Now, there will come a day when work is no longer by the sweat of our brow because of sin. But there's a whole theology of work that we won't unpack this morning. But I'll just leave you with a reminder that work is good. It was created before sin entered this world. It will exist after sin has been defeated. In fact, it's a part of what we are to be doing. It, oftentimes, what we are to be doing feels like work. That's not a bad thing doesn't make it bad. Work will exist even after sin has been defeated. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to run from. And what we learn is that diligence now will have its reward. The faithful and wise slave, or we might insert the disciple of Jesus Christ, is busy obeying God. That's how he's ready. That's how he knows he's ready because When he considers his time, he is busy obeying God, doing what Christ has taught and instructed us to do. He's busy doing what his master has told him to do. At its core, it's really simple. But as our experience has taught us, it's anything but simple, right? Being diligent, being faithful, doing the right thing every time, well, we find ourselves sinning quite often, don't we? And so we have to work at it. We have to work at diligence, at discipline. We have to encourage one another in this work. We have to repent of our sin. Thankful that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Thankful that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we keep on going. Well, verse 48, abruptly, something of a virtual whiplash, takes us from the scene of the faithful and wise slave and introduces us to quite a different character. This new character is introduced as the evil or wicked slave. Do we really need more of an introduction? There's really in this, though, something of a convicting plot twist in this parable. We all know or are familiar or aware of persons who live like there is no God And there is no accountability who are outside the church, who are in this world. We know there's people like that. that They live like there's no God. They live like there's no accountability. They live like they can do whatever they want at any time, and nothing's going to come of it. Those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, we saw that group of persons in verses 36 through 41. Notice here, though, the twist is that this type of person described here as the evil and wicked slave, seems to exist within the body of those who profess to believe. Within, we might say, the church. Up to this point in our study, those living lawlessly and acting like there is no accountability are unbelievers. But this seems to be talking about one who, at least on the surface, professes to be a fellow. Who on the outside claims to be a fellow slave. 
Notice he uses the language, my master. Reminiscent of what Jesus said will happen at the end of the age when many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, that is master, master. Do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? And what will Jesus say to him in that day? Depart from me, for I never knew you. He's described in verse 49 as a fellow slave, and yet for all his efforts, he's simply a lookalike. Only kind of a lookalike, because we get the extreme version here. He associates with the fellow slaves, he dresses like them, he lives with them, but as verse 51 indicates, he is not really one of them. He's a hypocrite, he's an actor. In fact, jumping ahead a bit to verse 51, the final punishment of this slave is there, and it's the same punishment that we see of the hypocrites and the wicked religious leaders throughout Matthew. Just two examples, Matthew 8, 12, where Jesus says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13, then the king said to his servants, this was another parable, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The hypocrite puts on the airs, they put on the appearance of religiosity. But at the heart, they are wicked and they are self-serving. And while the sin of some will follow them, they're much better at hiding it. It's harder to tell. In this parable, the sin goes before him. The evil is clearly manifest in this wicked slave. Believing or inferring in verse 49 from the delay in time that his master is not returning quickly the wicked slave begins to act unjustly. He beats his fellow slaves. Now again, we might infer that this slave is being compared to the previous one, so he's likewise been given the same commission. He's been put in charge of the household to love, to care, to provide. And instead, what does he do? He abuses them. Note too, he's called a fellow slave. He at least associates himself that way. But it also says something about his status. Despite the responsibilities, despite the fact that he has some level of responsibility that puts him in charge, he is still a fellow slave. He's not greater, he's not more important or better than them, though he certainly acts like it. Well, I believe this passage as a whole is intended to instruct all believers all those who should be waiting for Christ's return and looking to be ready at his return, it's particularly appropriate for those in positions of leadership in the church to remember their place, to remember what Jesus says, what he said in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. You remember that the disciples were bickering amongst themselves, who's the greater? And Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And they're great men, they exercise authority over them. It's not to be this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. One of the clearest signs of a godly leader in the church is that they are a servant in the church. There's no job that's beneath them. There's no person that's beneath them. Now, there's a benefit to sharing the load and using time wisely, but that's a matter of prudence, not pride. A leader in the church should look strange to the world. 
Because a godly leader in the church, first and foremost, serves others and considers themselves a slave. Nevertheless, the lesson here, while certainly being appropriate, having a particular appropriateness to leaders, is very much for all believers because we are all called to serve one another, are we not? We're all called to be servants. Galatians 5, 13 through 14, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn that freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've also all likewise, as we reminded last week, been given a stewardship, which is a different way of saying we have all been given responsibility by our master, 1 Peter 4, 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Well, returning to verse 49, the wicked slave uses his temporary authority and begins to abuse his fellow slaves. And then to his cruelty, as if that wasn't enough, he adds self-indulgence. You see there the phrase eating and drinking with drunkards. This is really a catch-all phrase. It serves as something of a euphemism for all sorts of unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Galatians 5, 21, Envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these of which I forewarn you. Those are, those are the catch-alls. Those are the, the capital terms under which all the others fall. There is in the life of this evil and wicked slave, which again, it's a little bit of hyperbole. It, here's what the really wicked one looks like. For clarity, this is what he looks like. There is a complete disregard for his responsibility. He could care less what his master has told him to do. By any measure, we would say, if we were to look at this slave, knowing the master is returning, by any measure, we would say, he's not ready. Why? Because he's not even trying to do what he's supposed to be doing. In comparison to the faithful and the sensible slave who is always doing what he's to be doing, or is day in and day out doing what he's to be doing, you have this one who is doing anything but what he's to be doing. It's like the employee who wastes away their time while their boss is on vacation. Or the student who puts off their homework because their teacher got sick. They're not ready for them to return. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. The problem for this wicked slave is the delay does not mean cancellation, as we see in verse 50. We talked about this last week. We are to live like the end is near, near in terms of proximity. There is an imminency that it should impact, and this imminency should impact how we live. The wicked slave will learn that delay does not mean cancellation of the master's return. He is coming again. It's emphasized by the phrase there in verse 50, at an hour which he does not know or does not expect. The only reason for providing this extra detail rather than just saying again, he's coming, is to emphasize the certainty of his return. It will come, just not at the hour and the day that he expects. The master may be away for a longer time period than expected, but that does not mean he will never come back. The application to the coming of the Son of Man is obvious from the context of verse 44 and the repeated emphasis on the unexpectedness of the Master's return. And we talked about how this is 
certainly been a problem in the church since just a couple days after Christ's ascension into heaven. We talked about that last week. It's the book of Second Peter. The, the letter that he had to write to believers was predominantly written to address that issue, right? Of do not think the Lord is slow about his promise, as some count slowness. He's patient, not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He is coming again. He's not slow. We need to act like it's near. It could happen at any moment. Well, what happens when the master does return? Well, if you have a weak stomach, look away. The parable or the illustration ends with an abrupt and unhappy fate for the wicked slave. He is cut in two. Now, you would think that would be the end of it. This is gruesome. It's a severe punishment. And once you're cut in two, you're dead. Right? That's the end of it. Well, no, not so fast. What Jesus illustrates here and reminds us of is that there is a fate worse than death. After death comes weeping and gnashing of teeth. Death in this life may end pain, but death in e- may end the pain in this life, but death in eternity for the wicked, for the unbelieving, for those who act like Christ will never return is never ending agony. Wishing that it was possible to die, that it was possible to end the agony, but instead it will continue forever and ever. Now, I cannot leave here without making what I think is an important observation. There's something significant that is implied in both the reward of the good slate and the punishment of the evil. Remember I said the, the emphasis here, even though we have the two illustrations of the good and faithful slave and the wicked and evil slave, the emphasis is still on the master in his return. And in order for the master, when he returns, to know the slave has been faithful, that the household has been cared for, or likewise, that they have been abused, and the slave, the wicked slave, is in fact wicked, he must evaluate, he must discern. Another word for that is he must judge. He must judge the faithfulness, the wisdom, to determine the slave's readiness upon his return. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, judging has a bit of a negative connotation, doesn't it? We don't mean it as a compliment when we say someone is judgy. Well, I'm here to tell you judgment's gotten a bad rap. There are forms of judgment that are bad where we shouldn't be doing that. We're we're judging with impure motives, as James calls it. But there are Very good times to judge. In fact, when you open your fridge and you see milk that's been sitting there a very long time, it's time to start judging. One of the most neglected themes in the modern church is the theme of judgment. Judgment of God towards sinners who do not repent and cry out in forgiveness. Judgment of God toward the church, as Peter calls out in 1 Peter 4.17. And even the judgment of Christians. In case you wonder where I got that, Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Not just some, every man. Likewise, in Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us, he's writing to believers. Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. He says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We see it in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, where he talks about the judgment 
of believers. Judgment is not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. Rather, it's a word from Jesus, the loving Lord of the universe. Children, let me ask you this. If your father or mother told you the stove is hot, don't touch it, you'll get burned, and are giving you rules and commands, are they doing it to make your life harder? Or is it a rule, a command, a warning that comes out of love? If your Savior tells you unbelief and evil behavior is harmful, don't touch it, you'll be in agony for eternity, that's a warning from love. If judgment is a reality, then love warns of judgment. And here the Lord of love warns us to live in light of his return, to be obedient because we will be judged. Just as the wise child believes their parent when they say, don't touch, the stove is hot, the wise person believes in Jesus and takes him at his word, does what he says to do. The wise person does good and not evil. The wise person believes that Jesus is coming soon to judge the living and the dead, and that he brings with him punishment for the wicked and reward for the righteous. I would be remiss if I didn't add, if you are here this morning and you recognize that you are under the judgment of God as an unbeliever, that if he were to come today, you are not ready, that you would be cast into that outer darkness, then I have good news for you. Today is the day of salvation. The good news of the gospel is that Christ took the punishment on your behalf, that sacrifice we talked about during communion. And if you will place your trust in him and ask God's forgiveness because of Christ's sacrifice as the perfect, spotless lamb who was crucified and bore the punishment of God for each one of us, then salvation can be yours today. There is no waiting period. There is no trial period. It's today. Do it. Do not delay. You know, it's true, we do not know the day or hour Christ will return. But what is clear from this just short parable is that we do not need to know. And we certainly should not be preoccupied with the when. In all of this, what is often ignored is that the last things should still be first. We don't know when Jesus will return, but we know for certain that he will return. And so as Peter says, as Matthew records Jesus saying, we are to be ready. We should be busy building up and longing for his kingdom. The answer to that question we started with, with how do I know I am ready? It's there in verse 46. Day in and day out, we are faithful at living wisely. We're doing what he told us to do. Wise living is Christ-like Living, it's following the instructions of Christ. The instructions that he entrusted the apostles to teach and to provide to us. And so we do those things. We love, love one another. We preach the gospel. When we get discouraged or begin to lose focus, we remind ourselves, we remind one another, he is near, he is coming again. I believe it was Martin Luther who said that Christians should live as if Jesus had died this morning, risen this afternoon, and was coming this evening. And it was Jonathan Edwards who wrote in his famous resolutions, 
actually, this made an impact on him because he wrote it in two different resolutions. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And a little bit later he wrote, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. That's living like you're ready. How are you doing with that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this encouragement this morning to be ready. Pray that you would help us to encourage, to exhort one another to be ready for your return. To be ready for judgment. That we might, at that judgment, hear declare to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to be faithful stewards with what you have entrusted us with. Not wishing for more, not wishing for less, but faithful with what we have. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have not left us wondering what it looks like to be ready, that you've given us so much instruction in your word. Help us in being disciplined. Help us to show love for one another. In your name, amen. Let's stand as we sing, Jesus paid it all.